Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Rooted Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Panetta. And as always, we're downtown in Salem, Oregon today. Uh, have a wonderful guest sitting a- across from me. It's fun because lo- oftentimes I'm on Zoom. Sometimes they're here in person. So I always love it when I can see their face. Uh, but as always, I'd like to give a little intro to those of you that are new to the show of what we're all about. Uh, this podcast is connected to a leadership institute that we have here in our community. And a number of years ago, we started this leadership institute with the goal of raising the tide of leaders in our community. We feel like if we can do that, then all boats raise in the harbor. And our goal, our vision, is to be a catalyst for transformational change. So we work with leaders across all sectors. Uh, we have a year-long leadership institute. We take on about 20 to 25 leaders per year. Uh, we have an amazing alumni community that we're building, and we really believe that uh, leadership is key to change in a, at the community level. So that's what we're all about. Uh, I want to introduce my guest now and get right into it. Uh, Richard Sheridan is sitting in front of me. He's an author of a couple of books. Uh, well, your title is Chief Storytelling Officer, but kind of like CEO, right? Uh, that's that's the, the more technical term, we'll say, of uh, Menlo Innovations in, in Michigan. And uh, just an incredible story. You've been doing it, you know, a long time. Um, your books are, are, are awesome. I haven't read this one. I've read chunks of this one, and I love the stories. Uh, I heard you speak a few years ago at an Arbinger Summit, um, Arbinger Institute Summit. That's the first time I heard you speak, first time I learned about your organization and, and the book. And then I would reference it all the time because I used to work there, and I'd be on the phone with clients, and I would talk about the stories that you'd share. I'd reshare those stories. So... Uh, uh, you didn't know me, but I was always talking about you. So it's kind of fun to have you sitting here now. And Richard's in town because we have our Leadership Institute tomorrow, and he's going to speak with our group. So that's uh, me setting the stage, Richard. But why don't you share a little bit more about yourself? I mean, you know, who are you? What do you do? I mean, just dive in wherever you'd like. Great. Well, wonderful to be here with you today, Chris. And thanks for the... Uh for the promotion of my books and my story <laughs> along the years before I knew you and uh, looking forward to spending tomorrow with you and in the Leadership Institute. Um, yeah, my story is uh, I'm a pure Michigan kid, grew up in Michigan, live there now, live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Michigander? Um, is that uh, Michi- um, Yeah, you either say Michigander, which I think is what most of us say, okay. or Michiganian, I guess, okay. is uh, the alternative. Well, you know Mike Renner at Arbinger? Uh-huh, yeah. yes. He's from Michigan. I know So that. he taught me yep. about Michigander. That's right. Yeah. Yep, Mike and I know each other well. Awesome. And, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, my story is I touched a computer for the first time when I was just a kid, mm-hmm. way back in 1971. Uh, my high school is one of the first... Uh, well, the Macomb County, where I grew up, is one of the first three counties in the nation to offer computer science at the high school level, mm-hmm. way back in the 70s. Wow. It's crazy. Uh, so I happened to be in the right place at the right time. Started typing things on computers, typed in a little two-line program, typed the word run, and it clacked out, hi, Rich, because that's what I told it to do, and I was hooked, and I knew what I wanted to do the rest of my days. Um by 1973, I typed all the Major League Baseball players into the computer so my friends and I could play our favorite Major League Baseball teams against one another in a cold Michigan winter in months. So you're sitting with a guy yeah. here who invented fantasy baseball. <laughs> now, there's a lot of inventions that get pushed off the shelf and then somebody else really invents it, but you know, I probably did it first. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, uh, But uh, that program was entered into an international programming contest, won the gaming category, and launched a career that I'm still in to this day. 
and um, uh, so I stayed working through high school graduation as a programmer, uh, eventually went to the University of Michigan, got a couple of degrees in computer science, computer engineering, launched a career that by all external measures looked perfect. Unfortunately, there was a different line that was far more important to me. It was the one here in my heart mm-hmm. where I realized I don't even want to be in the industry anymore because there was so much chaos. There was mm. bureaucracy trying to tame the chaos. Um, there was firefighting galore. There was long days. There was uh, unhappy customers, unhappy users, unhappy me, unhappy team members I was leading. And I thought, you know what? There's got to be a better way to do this. Yeah. And so... In many ways, my life journey, as my books imply, has been a pursuit of joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and getting back to that joyful element of why do we work? What is our purpose in working? And I, I finally came to a story because uh, a lot of people, you know, I've written two books, Joy Inc. and Chief Joy Officer. And people would ask me, Tell me about your joy, Rich. Where does it come from? And I thought it was technological. I thought it was the fun of designing and developing software, which is can be a very joyful activity if done well. But I realized for me that the story was actually deeper, and it went back further in my life. When I was 10, my parents had bought the equivalent of an Ikea bookshelf. It was out in the garage. It was in a box. Mm-hmm. They went out to dinner and a movie. And I went out in the garage one the night they went out for a dinner and a movie, and I built that bookshelf. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, no, mom wants it in the living room, not in the garage. So I inched that thing out of the garage, down the sidewalk, into the living room, right where mom wanted it. Set up the books that my dad had, mom's knickknacks, wired up the stereo, and had it playing mom's favorite album when they came back. And she cried. And I realized in that moment, that's joy. Yeah. When we use the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds to the mm. delight of others. When we use it to serve others. Mm. And so for me, everything I talk about is getting back to that kind of joy. How does the work of us as individuals and as uh, teams of people who work on hard things, big mm-hmm. things, important things, how do we do it to serve others, to delight others? And that has really been sort of the theme of my life once I realized that's what I'm really all about. Yeah. Love that. That's a, an awesome story. Um, so, I mean, I remember when you were uh, speaking at that summit, you you talked about your introduction, obviously, to Arbinger Books. Uh, and, and, you know, you're kind of similar to the folks that I, I work with now. Is They didn't know that there was more than the books for a while. They were just reading. If I remember correctly, you were yep. reading the books. You didn't know that... They were, you know, a fallen company, and I'm not Arbinger, so I'm not here to promote Arbinger, but, but uh, that's where, uh, you know, where the the story that that uh, I remember you telling, but, and you you talked to it a little bit here, talked about it a little bit here, where you said, you know, there was no more fun in it, and it was kind of getting chaotic. I remember you telling that story of, kind of what got you over the hump, and you formed, you know, um, the company to the way it is now. I mean, can you tell a little bit more about that? Absolutely. That part of the story. You know, I I hit, uh, I would say, a personal trough of disillusionment when I was in my early 30s. When I would come home from long days at work, my wife would look at tired me and she'd say, Honey, you look really tired. Did you get a lot done today? And I'd think about it. I thought, No, I got nothing done today. I was busy from one end of the day mm-hmm. to the other. 
was answering phone calls in meetings, putting out fires, trying to, you know, lead people in one way, shape, form, or another, but I would get nothing done. And she looked at me, she says, you don't look happy. And I said, I'm not. She said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, I don't know. And I will tell you, in that moment, I'm sure that I was feeling, you know, early 30s. Mm-hmm. Now we have three kids, a house, two cars, all the responsibilities of life. And I was scared. Yeah. Because this is what, this was the only thing I knew how to do. But I looked ahead 30 years and I thought, I can't, I can't do this another 30 years. And so when she said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, I don't know. I thought that's, that's a clanging bell in my head that says, you got to start working on this. So my first journey, and I think you and I share a similar one, just looking around your office here, I started reading books, but not books on technology. This wasn't a technological problem. This was a human problem. Mm. How do we organize humans more effectively? How do we build teams? How do we build simple systems and structures that allow us to go to work and actually get meaningful things done? Yeah. And give people a chance to work with pride. So that became my mission. And the books I was reading in those days were books like Tom Peters in Search of Excellence, Peter Drucker's books on management, um, uh, Peter Sange's book, The Fifth Discipline on the Art and Practice of Building a Learning Organization. Mm-hmm. All of these books were telling there was a better way of doing things than was customary. Some companies had achieved it, but they didn't tell you how to do it. That was kind of left as an exercise to the reader. And so, uh, I kept working, of course. Did you hate I, that? And, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> they tell you all the things, but then yeah. they don't tell you how. Yeah. Or they'll tell you, you know, look at this amazing company, what they've done. Great. How did they do yeah. that? Right. And, uh, well, you know, it was complicated or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I have this inner optimist. Uh, I was stuck in a room full of manure. I knew there had to be a pony in this room somewhere. And I was determined to find it. And there's another element of me where that I know is when I see a problem like sitting in front of me like a rock, I will pour my spirit on that rock like a waterfall until it turns into sand. Mm-hmm. And that was what I was determined to do. And so perhaps the only thing that drove me forward was knowing that there was an answer out there and I would know it when I saw it. And that mm-hmm. actually happened in 1999. I had a click moment where suddenly everything became clear. I'd read a book, I'd seen a video, and I met a guy who had become my co-founder of Menlo. And those all happened within a couple of months of one another, and it was literally life-changing, and I haven't looked back since, and I got back to joy and have been there since 1999. Wow. Love that. It, it uh, The story reminds me of... Um couple things you know in our in our curriculum we talk a lot about um deeply seeing and what we mean by deeply seeing is a couple things it's excuse me it's um first thing is to have live with purpose you know to live a life uh with purpose to have meaning and you and i were talking about um victor frankel before we started to to record and one thing i love about frankel is he was the, I mean, he kind of put the idea of, we put logotherapy on the map, but the, it's basically therapy of meaning, finding and having meaning that when you have meaning, you can make it through almost anything. Mm -hmm. And speaking from somebody who made it through concentration camps, right? We ought to 
take what he says very seriously. And I, you know, I've, I've probably referenced this in dozens of our episodes, but I just love it so much. And what I'm hearing as you're talking, um, as you're sharing, I'm, I, it's coming back to mind. And he talks about, you know, there's three types of meaning basically. And one is a, having a work to do. And, uh, and you shared in your story, you know, you were working, you were working every day. And I love what you said, because I've heard it from another one of our presenters, we had him on the show, I don't know, several months ago, he said the same thing. He's like, if you're coming home from work, and you're exhausted, you're tired, you didn't get to really eat, you didn't really get to use the restroom, you feel like you worked so, so hard, you're, you're just gonna pass out. But you don't know what you did. <laughs> and that's a problem. Right? Yes. And, and, uh, that's a work to do, and it gives us enough sort of meaning to keep to keep going in some regard, but it's not sustainable. It doesn't last, and Frankel says that. He says the other form of meaning is is um, a deeper level is, is connection, human connection, and usually that pushes us a little bit more. We'll, we'll do, you know, we'll push through a lot of things for human connection. We find purpose and meaning in that, but even he says, again, he lost everybody when he was in the camp, so mm-hmm. he said even when, what, what do we do when that's gone? You know, what do we do when human connection's gone? Um, you know, his wife died when he was in there, uh, and he saw people literally die every day. Um, so he talked about human connection. It, it won't, it, it doesn't always, it doesn't always last. Um, you know, the people that you're connected to will someday, they might not be there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so it's when he discovered kind of his, the crux of his theory, which is suffering, that suffering is one of the greatest forms of meaning. And that's what I'm hearing when you're talking. You got to this point of suffering, and he said he says he says so many great things that I love. But one of the things he says is that you know suffering is something we shouldn't go around asking for. <laughs> He's like, don't go around asking for suffering, but when it happens, um, treat it as if it's one of the greatest opportunities that you have mm-hmm. because it's when if you can find meaning in your suffering, then it's gonna last forever. He said, uh, he also said, not, this isn't verbatim, but somewhere along these lines, he said, um, we should live worthy of our suffering. You know, that this, the suffering that we res- that happens to us, we need to be worthy of it. Because the greater the suffering, the greater the meaning. Um, so I, I love that. And, and I hear all of those themes in your story. And what I love about that is this, similar things we try to teach our, our leaders as well. Is it's one thing to, to be accountable. It's one thing to see people as people and do all the things, be innovative, you know, handle conflict well. But at the end of the day, if you and your organization don't have a deep sense of purpose and meaning, it's going to be really hard yep. to, um, to thrive, to last, to make it through challenges, to find that meaning. So I'm hearing all of those as you're sharing your story, and I love it. Well, Chris, you'll appreciate, because uh, you don't know this about us, our mission since our founding is to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. I remember, I remember that. I actually remember you sharing that. <laughs> end human suffering as it relates to technology. You know, and, and for us, uh, there's three kinds of suffering in, in technology circles. Uh, there's suffering for the people who pay to have software built and often don't get the results they were hoping for, and they maybe have spent tens of millions mm-hmm. of dollars. Then there's the suffering of the people who do the work, Yeah, who see their work shelved, pushed off... Uh, you know, pushed off the shelf into the ocean uh, because uh, it didn't satisfy some basic human need that, yeah. uh, and they worked for years of their mm-hmm. life on that. And then there's the suffering of the people who one day use the technology. The users, yeah. And so that's uh, those are the three constituents we focused on, and ultimately we decided rather than have people remember us as the ending human suffering company, we flipped it around and we said our goal 
is to return joy to what we believed was one of the most unique endeavors mankind has ever undertaken, the invention of software. Yeah. Yeah, love that. Yeah, I rem- I, when you said that, I remembered distinctly when you shared that in in the summit. Uh, so, so tell us more about how you've discovered what does it mean to bring joy into into the world of software development and, and, and how you're addressing those different versions of suffering. Yeah, you know, if you, people who don't know technologists or programmers probably have a Dilbert-esque type stereotype in their head, and there's some truth to that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, programmers are often introverted. Uh, then, of course, we take them and put them in sensory deprivation chambers called yeah. cubicles, yeah. let them put headphones on, turn the lights down low, tell everybody, don't bother them. Yeah. They're thinking really deep thoughts right now, you know. And, uh, and then later lament that all of our introverted programmers lack interpersonal skills, you know, <laughs> shocking, right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but ultimately, there is a heart inside of technology people mm-hmm. that is only satisfied when one thing happens and that is to see their work get out into the world see the light of day yeah and have it so delightfully used by the people it was intended for that they come back find the people who built it and say i love that thing you built yeah you know they're they're often amazed you know there's a little bit of magic in writing software people who don't know how to do it are amazed by the people who can but ultimately the satisfaction in the career only comes from serving others. Yeah. And so... It's like art. Yes, it mm-hmm. is a lot like art. In fact, it is art. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very creative process. Yeah. It, it, it gets down into the very essence of what it means to be a human being. The creativity, the imagination, the invention, the innovation. Those are the things that make us uniquely human. Mm-hmm. And so for us, we said, could we make a process that systematically and regularly produces that without killing the people who are doing the work. Yeah. And so for 21 years... And that's years, suffering, yeah. Yeah. And so for 21 years, we have worked uh, creating software that actually sees the light of day, delights the people it's intended to serve, but we had to change everything in order to do that. We had to change how the people are organized. So, for example, I'll just give some teasers because... This will cause people to ask lots of questions and want to read the books. <laughs> we work two people to one computer. Yeah. All work is done. Remember that. And, and one keyboard, right? One they keyboard pass it back and mouse. forth. They pass it back and forth. They are working shoulder to shoulder all day long. Yeah. And then every five days, we switch those pairs. And so no one is ever alone. No one's ever thinking a thought all by themselves. They're always collaborating with another human being, mm-hmm. sharing their ideas with others, learning how to work through the necessary conflicts that are going to produce yeah. good results. And then by switching the pairs, we're spreading the knowledge so that there's no individual towers of knowledge, which is almost classic in the software industry. Yeah, There's always one guy, Marty, who knows everything about one thing and nobody else knows what Marty knows. And Marty can't take vacations He can't Mm -hmm. retire, you know, heaven forbid he would think he could actually die someday and and think he had a good career because he's got everything trapped in his head. We don't want that for people. We want when people go on vacation. I mean, this is a crazy thing. People can't even believe we do this. We, just through peer pressure alone, there's no system in place to enforce this. We forbid you from checking email while you're away from the office. (laughs) 
right? And yeah. that's, you know, people are like, what? You know, we have one of our team members, she goes on long trips with her husband because his family's from Hong Kong. And they're gone seven weeks. Yeah. And the whole time she's not checking email. And he's over there. He works in a different company, a different yeah. job. And he's on the she's beach with emails. the kids checking emails. And he keeps looking at her saying, well, don't you need to check some work emails? She goes, nope, I'm on vacation. Oh, well, yeah, but don't you need to keep up? Nope. They're taking care of that back there because she's not an individual tower of knowledge. We share it throughout the team. And so those are some elements. We don't work mm-hmm. overtime. If we need more done, we add more people to the project and we get more done. Yeah. And so all of these things, you know, they're, you know, people will equate joy to happiness, which I think there's happiness at Menlo too. Joy is much more foundational. Yeah. Joy goes deeper. It goes back to Mm -hmm. the meaning you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Because our work is hard work, just like everybody's work is hard work. You can't be happy every minute of every day. That would probably require medication. Yeah. But this is the deep satisfaction that, you know, A, you're going to work every day, have a chance to work with pride. The systems and processes we use guarantee that. And then we have a whole other set of people we had to essentially uh, invent, if Mm -hmm. you will, (laughs) um, called high-tech anthropologists. And their job, go out in the world and study the people we intend to serve so that we actually understand what they need. Most software is designed by engineers in whiteboarded conference room, and they're sitting around saying, I think it should work like this. It's like, really? Do you, have you talked to the people who one day use it? No, no, I'm sure this will work for them. And if it doesn't, it's just because they're stupid users and we'll write dummies books for them. No, yeah. you can actually yeah. study the people mm-hmm. you intend to serve and make it work for them so they don't need books. They don't need training classes. They don't need to be called stupid users. So all of those things are put together in a very simple, repeatable, measurable, visible system inside of our company so that we can systematically produce the kind of results we want to produce for our, for the end users that use the software. Yeah. I was reading, uh, no, not reading, I was watching, I can't remember what documentary it was, on, It was, but there was software developers on there, some of the, you know, people that participated in real, you know, well-known tech that we all use, Gmail, and one of them was talking about how, you know, sitting alone at your desk, they wrote the code for, you know, the inbox and like little things here in, in Google that we all use. But he he was saying, he said, I was, it was, I was doing that with my own perspective, mm-hmm. you know, my own paradigm of the world, not taking into account anybody else. And, and now it's something that touches millions of people, right? And he was talking about, you know, re- almost a regret of why are we not more engaged in that process because we're writing code uh, for people and we're, we're having a huge impact in the world and we're not even we're not even learning about the people we're impacting right. so I love that you have what you call them tech high tech high tech anthropologists, anthropologists. yeah yep. I love that and they are not programmers their job is simply to study the people we intend to serve hmm. and then they'll watch something like Gmail be used if we were creating it and they'll see where people are making mistakes. And rather than criticizing them, yeah, they make note our, of them, yeah. we make note of them. We ask the user, so what were you expecting it to do? I'm like, I think it'd really be good if it did this. Oh, awesome. And then the next time the software comes out, the mistakes are designed out of the system. Yeah. So it keeps getting better and better over time. Yeah. 
Wow, I need one of those anthropologists to. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> to follow Every, me around, and you know, honestly, I mean, I, I I see the world through different eyes because of what we do, and and I look at you know simple things like um, what I call the stupid chip reading credit card machines, right? Where you mm-hmm. walk up to it and you are you supposed to swipe, insert, tap, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and you follow the prompts, and then it starts yelling at you by beeping, you know, remove your card and that sort of thing, and. There's a popular deli in Ann Arbor that I love to go to, and they just implemented, you know, put a new one of these in. Yeah. And my gosh, the type is so tiny. I'm taking <laughs> off my glasses and I'm trying to see it. And and I'm thinking, did they ever watch anyone like me try and use this, yeah. right? And whoever the engineer is probably has perfect vision. Yeah. So he's like, I can see it. Well, yeah, you I know, can if see you it. can't, you just have to go to the optometrist and get a better prescription. Like, yeah. no, could you make the font a little bigger? Yeah. I mean, the whole screen's there. You could make it a little bigger. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Love that. What 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 else? I mean, I have I still remember a lot of the stories you shared. I don't want to give them all away, but, I mean, you talked about, you know, um, well, one of my favorites, which I hope you can share this story. You can build up to it or you can jump right into it, but is, you know, the, the, the lady you had working for you who, you know, was looking for childcare. Yep. That that one was awesome. You talked about, you know, strategy, finance meetings open to everybody. Yes. People touring. I mean, you. I think I remember you saying, you know, pay like everybody. People promoted each other, and uh-huh. and and if I'm remembering correctly, pay was knowledgeable for everybody. Absolutely. So all that yep. stuff. I mean, talk about whatever you'd like. But <laughs> we're, I we're, I was fast. I was hooked the whole time you were talking because I was like, I cannot believe this. This is working for, I mean, how does this happen? And I remember thinking too at the time, I'm like, man, I, I love working at Arbinger, but I, I want to go work at this place. <laughs> I'm like, too bad I don't know code. I don't know anything about software, but I should have been a coder. That's it. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I often joke that, um, you know, people say, well, where do you find people? Because there's always this claim of a talent shortage. In well, the interview the process, technology. I remember too. Yes. And, uh, and I tell them, I said, well, people regularly send us their children. And they look at me funny and they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, some parent whose kid just graduated from college, maybe with a, C, a, a computer science degree, and they hear about Menlo, and they're like, oh, my gosh, my kid would love to work at a place like that. And all of a sudden, their resume starts showing up. So it may not be for you, Chris, but maybe your children someday <laughs> yeah. can come work for us. Um, well, uh, I'll touch on a few things because uh, you've just opened up about two hours of conversation <laughs> with those little snippets there. So um, so there's, there's some core philosophies at Menlo. So number one, we hate meetings. We think meetings are mind-numbing, spirit-sucking, energy-draining devices of management. So the ones we have, we keep very short, and we try and have as few as possible. Uh, And then there's a a basic notion that says, if somebody has an idea, let's try it. Yeah. Rather than defeat it, rather than say, you know, that that won't work. It's against policy. We should have a meeting about that. No, just run the experiment. Run the experiment. I remember that. Run the experiment. And so that's a very common theme. You might hear that once or twice a day at Menlo. Somebody says, hey, I think we could try this. And somebody else say, great, let's run the experiment. experiment. And just try stuff. And and it's usually little stuff. Mm -hmm. But the the story you're referring to, which is probably one of the more famous run the experiment stories, was uh, Tracy had little Maggie 14 years ago. Maggie's 14 now. Um, and uh, she was ready to come back to work after maternity leave, and she came up to me. We had an exciting new project starting that she wanted to be part of. And she said, Rich, uh, the daycare we plan to use is full, and 
grandparents live too far away to help. My husband and I don't know what to do. And in that moment, I had this like screaming match in my brain, which, uh, you know, bright voice, dark voice. <laughs> and the dark voice said, don't you dare say what you're about to say. You know, HR will shoot you. You know, the, the lawyers will freak. The insurance policy go through the roof. The bright voice says, your company, you can do whatever you want. You don't even have an HR department. <laughs> and uh, so I looked at Tracy. I said, bring her in. And she kind of got wide-eyed. And she said, what do you mean? I said, bring her into work. She said, all day? I said, sure. She said, every day? I said, yeah. <laughs> now, she's testing to see if I thought this through. Absolutely not. I haven't thought anything through. And she looks out this big open room, because we work in a place that has no walls, offices, mm-hmm. cubes, or doors. And she said, Rich, where will I put her? Because this wasn't an offer to build a daycare. Baby was going to be with the mom. And uh, I said, Tracy, she's three months old. She's not going anywhere. Just put her in a front pack and a pack and play in a swing right where you're working. She says, well, what if she makes a fuss? I said, here, it's like a noisy restaurant. We're talking to each other in our pairs all day long. It's a lot of noise. And she said, but what if she makes that big baby fuss? It'll destroy the ambiance of the whole place. Everybody will hate me. I said, Tracy, you're the mom. I trust you. You'll do the right thing. We'll work it out together. Let's run the experiment. Yeah. We've had 27 Menlo babies in the last 14 years. That's amazing. And almost all of them have come in all day, every day, for several months at a time. It Uh is a delightful part of our culture, and it has worked, and it has worked delightfully. Yeah. I I remember when you said that, and you teed it up perfectly at this, when you did this speech, because you had pictures up. And, uh, and you, 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 you talked about the story you just shared and then you said that was, you know, 20 something babies ago. Yep. And I remember I, uh, I only had one, I have three kids now. I had one at the time and, uh, I, man, I teared up because we had one little baby, well, one, two years old and we were both working and she was in daycare mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was just tough. You know, I was never around her. So I'd go see her at lunch and, uh, you know, my wife would. Fortunately, she kind of, she worked in the same place, but still she didn't get to see her whole lot. So it just, you know, I got all emotional when I saw it. I was actually, you know, skimming through the book again. I found that picture. Where is it? What page in the book? With You have a picture of one of the workers. Uh-huh. Holding a baby. Yeah. Yeah, and moms oh, and dads have taken advantage of this. This hasn't been just a program for the moms. Yeah, it was, uh, so. it was uh, it's two guys working and he had a baby yep. on his, yep. I can't remember the picture, but yeah. you know which one I'm talking about. Yep. Yeah, it was just amazing. So that, that, gosh, when you shared that story, I was, I couldn't believe it. I've shared that story more times than I can count. <laughs> you know, and I get to share those kinds of stories around the world. And talking about joy in the context of work, I wasn't sure if the world would take me seriously. But I knew I was onto something when I had male German engineers in Berlin come up to me in tears afterwards I think for the same reason you're describing and I thought okay if I can get the German engineers to cry <laughs> then I, I think I, I'm probably doing okay and that that this is an important message because ultimately for me the the human energy that results from this kind of setup is what we want in our work lives hmm. I don't care if you're the top guy like I am as a CEO. I want to walk into a place where I want to be every day. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's part of this that's personally a very selfish journey. I wanted the kind of company 
that I wanted to go into every yeah. day because that's what I didn't have for so much mm-hmm. of my early career. And after a while, I started taking really, really long drives to work. I'd drive past work. I'd go down these long country roads. I'd drive past farms and churches and pastures. And and then I'd get about five miles past where I was supposed to be. And I'd say, what are you doing? Go to work. Yeah. So I'd show up as late as I could. I'd leave as early as I could. That's not a work life. That's a prison term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, amen to that. That is... That's powerful. Uh, I remember you sharing too, the some of the, you know, there's no way to pinpoint specifically what happened after, but you you shared a number of kind of data points of what happened after, you know, having kids in the office, clients loved coming more around, <laughs> culture change, any low conflict already, but it, you said it was just non-existent after. Well, that. there's just some great stories to share about that. There was one day I I ended up holding a lot of the babies because I've kids my own and I just love holding the babies and there was one day I had Christina's little boy on my lap and she was off about 10 12 feet away having a conversation with somebody and I was waiting for a phone call from a customer and the phone rings and I've got him on my lap little Solomon and I realized that this phone's going to roll over to voicemail if I don't answer it and I'm trying to catch Christina's attention like can you grab Solomon right and I couldn't do it, so I picked up the phone, and I start talking. Well, I don't know if you remember this when your kids were young, but mm-hmm. when the parent is trapped on a phone, yeah, the kids, they start making noises, yeah. you yeah. know. Attention's off of it, yeah. So finally, I had to fess up to this person on the phone who had no idea, <laughs> you know, what kind of culture it is. And I said, by the way, um, you're probably going to hear a baby in the background. They're like, oh, are you working at home? I said, no, I'm in the office. <laughs> oh, you bring your children to work? It's not mine. They're like, What? I said, well, I mean, and then I'd explain it. Yeah. And her answer was, oh, my gosh, I want to work with a company that thinks like you do. <laughs> and I said, okay, Solomon's part of the marketing team now. Yeah. And uh, and I remember one time, you know, there are unexpected things that happened. I remember I was, uh, I have this deep voice, as you can hear, and I lead a lot of the tours of Menlo. We have three to 4,000 people a year come from all over yeah, the world just awesome. to see us. And so when I'm leading tours, if there's a baby in the office that's ready for nap time, the mom or the dad will say, hey, Rich, um, could you carry Ellie on your tour? Because you only need one hand to lead a tour, <laughs> and I think you'll put her to sleep. You know, <laughs> I have a voice that puts people to sleep. And uh, so, sure, grab the baby. I'm leading the tour. The next day, Ellie had put a little Post-it note on my monitor. I think she had help. It said, dear Mr. Rich, I- I'm really sorry I threw up in your shoes during the tour yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, that's good. Yeah, it's, there's been a lot of delightful stories that have come out of it. But, you know, a lot of people these days are trying to figure out how do we energize our people? How do we retain our people? Mm-hmm. How do we build a relationship with them where they, they'll they give that extra because they just want to be here? Yeah. And I will tell you, giving them a chance, as you were describing, to see your child yeah. all day. Right, and it's funny. A lot of people say, well, what effect does that have on their productivity and I look at him I said compared to what and I said the mom who's nervous about their child being in daycare and gets the call that says hey you got to come rescue your kid and in the middle of the day they're gone because they have to go I said we don't have any of that baby's right there yeah that's so crazy I I love it and so you know just a side sidebar note you know note here um you know I, I love storytelling 
I think I told this to you when we first spoke, I, I get to teach a class on storytelling and um, it was part, a key piece of my master's thesis and I, I love storytelling and I know how many times you've probably shared all these stories, countless times, but every time they're so good and you do such a great job of reliving those moments and being in the moment and, and it feels like it's the first time you share those stories. So appreciate you doing that because I know how it can be to share the same story over and over again, but you, you are great at doing that. Well, and, and Chris, I will confirm, you know, your studies, at least from my perspective, you'll get one other data point here. Storytelling is a fundamental act of leadership. Hmm. Storytelling is an art as old as human history. Mm -hmm. Campfire songs, anthems of nations, totems. Movies, this is the TV way shows, yeah. we have moved society forward, tribes, communities, nations. And stories are what connect heart to mind, body to spirit concept to reality yeah. uh, there's a famous line in management that says um, you know culture eats strategy for breakfast yeah I believe storytelling sets the meal sets the table for that meal mm. yeah love that gosh uh, we could spend a whole episode talking about storytelling <laughs> yes we could <laughs> uh, yeah I'd... I have a whole keynote I do just on storytelling alone and I actually uh, when I do it I just tell the stories some of the popular ones that you've heard and then uh, but then I decompose. What 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 are the elements of this story? Why are they important? Because yeah. storytelling, like everything else in life, is a skill. Mm -hmm. It's something you can practice, yeah. and it takes deliberate practice. Yeah, yeah. I tell I tell my uh, students that uh, you know an unanalyzed story they haven't analyzed, they haven't you know thought about, often isn't worth sharing. It's not till after you analyze it that it's worth sharing, and you find meaning and purpose in it. But but definitely a, a skill. Some people are more gifted than others, but but formal storytelling is takes practice. I remember when I first, you know, I went through the Arbinger facilitator training, the old the old school way, where you had a marker and a flip chart, and you had to draw everything, and the, all the stories were up on the facilitator's back. That's kind of what felt made me fall in love with storytelling. Well, and the two lead books, you know, Leadership and Self Deception: yeah, The Anatomy of Peace, are stories. Stories, yeah. And, you know, when I read Leadership and Self-Deception, I thought, oh, my gosh, I want to be Lou. Yeah. But I'll never be Lou. No one, I mean, Lou must have been just born like that. Lou was mm -hmm. such an amazing human being. And then I go read The Anatomy of Peace, and I'm like, <laughs> Lou was a total jerk. Yeah. Lou was a horrible person. He's a horrible father, a terrible husband, a bad boss. And, yeah. and then, you know, in, in what I tell people, I, I still say it to this day. That's how I got to know Arbinger. They heard me on a podcast say this and called me up, Mike Renner did, and said, hey, thanks for your oh, shout Oh, yeah, that's the story. Yeah, I remember. I, I, I just tell people those may be the two most important books I've ever read. Yeah. And they convicted me. I mean, when you read those books, they ring you out emotionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I books don't usually do that much ringing out of me, and those two were just convicting. Yeah, and so I share those books with everybody. We actually Arbinger and Menlo now. I send my books to them, and they send their books to me. We just give our books away <laughs> to uh, to people who come in. So it's been a great relationship. But um, uh, you know, in fact, the way I got to know those books in the first place was somebody had come in on a tour and saw us and said, wow, you've based all this on leadership and self-deception, have you? haven't you? And I said, what do you mean? What is that? And they said, you haven't read that book? I said, no. And they <laughs> literally had it on my 
um, in my home email, uh, home mailbox yeah. the next day. Wow. And, and then I tore into it and I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, speaking of their books and again, I'm not trying to promote, but you're welcome. Arbinger. just, we always talk about Arbinger stuff here, but you know, when I, when I first came here, speaking of storytelling in their books, you know, Mountain West, these real estate developers who I work for, but they're also philanthropists. So they do so much in the community and, and when I was working at Arbinger, they came through a, a, a training. They were the same. They didn't know that all they thought they, there was was, a, was books. So mm-hmm. they had been reading Leadership and Self-Deception for, I think, seven or eight years and just having little book studies here. Found out that there's more than that. They signed up for a public workshop on their own. I took them on as a client, met them at lunch. And then the first day of a two-day training at lunch there in Farmington, Utah, uh, uh, they said to me, they said, this is so good. Can we bring this to our community? And I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Well, we just want to introduce this to our community. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, you know, our superintendent. And they just start listing all these high-profile people here. And I'm thinking, who are these guys? They're real estate developers. Who do they think they are? But I'm, I'm going along with it. In the back of my mind, I'm kind of, you know, a little skeptical. Like, who they just think they can just bring this to their community. I really liked the guys, you know, the awesome, awesome people. We, we hit it off. But I didn't really think anything was going to come of it. Two, two weeks later. You know, they phoned me. It might be even less time than that. They phoned me up and they say, hey, uh, can you send us, you know, a box of books? Like, how many? Send us 100. We're going to hand them out. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So they (laughs) hand them out. And then they call me up not too long after that. They say, all right, so October, this would have been summertime of 2015, 2016, I think. And they say, October, October 3rd or 5th or something like that. Can we have 40 of your packets here and a facilitator? Like sure, that means you're gonna have forty people there. That like, yeah, yeah, we, we're gonna get we're gonna get people there. So I'm starting to believe that okay, these guys are serious. Sure enough, we show up. I show up in that that October, a couple months later, and everybody they said was gonna be there was there. We have city officials, CEOs of companies, you know, just all these influencers in the community do this train this workshop. Incredible experience. I mean, stories are shared. Amazing, just downtown in Salem. And after that, all of these leaders, they started meeting on their own here at this office in that conference room to talk about how can we turn our community outward. Mm. And uh, they just started talking about that regularly. And I started to join these conversations. And eventually, the next year, beginning of the next year, they they uh, wanted to fly me out. But my son was almost born, so I was staying home. So I had to join on a conference call. And they shared You could have brought him with you. <laughs> <laughs> Should have, right? Uh, they... Uh, they they shared this vision of turning the community outward and gosh i felt so compelled by i want to be a part of that and um uh i didn't know how to tell them that i wanted to do more than just be their arbinger representative had no intention of leaving leaving arbinger but uh you know one conversation led to the next one day i built up the courage and just called them and told them kind of how i felt had an hour-long conversation and Next thing I know, they're flying down talking about, Chris, we don't have a job up here for you. We're real estate people, right? We write checks uh, to the community. We do philanthropic giving, but we don't employ, you know, philanthropic employees, but we want you to come up here. We don't have a job, but we'll figure it out. So they fly me up here to talk, and we eventually, you know, move our little family up here, and and uh, we just start to spread outward mindset, offering trainings monthly and you know, a couple of years go by, thousands of people have gone through the content. Now we're to this point where we've realized there's so much more that we can we can do in our community. We've started this leadership institute. We still are big partners of Arbinger, but we've wrote, written our own curriculum, and we've realized what 
community transformation can look like. We've kind of, you know, but it started with, with that, uh, sharing of the book. It's awesome. Simple, simple things like that. Yep. So, um, well, you know, we got, let's see, 10, 15, 10 or so minutes left, 10, 15 minutes. I'd love for you to share highlights of what you're going to discuss with the group tomorrow. I have this little image here sitting in front of me. Um, lead, you know, lead with joy. You got the airplane here. If you're willing, could you talk us through Absolutely. kind of the highlights of what you're going to, what you're going to address? You know, I, I talk about my, I'll, I'll start by giving some of my personal history and you've heard that story at the beginning of the podcast here. And, um, I realized that this isn't about finding the perfect setting dial for bureaucracy Mm -hmm. because what happens if you go in through chaos for too long, you'll have bad things happen, right? Mm -hmm. And then you got to correct them. So you end up creating bureaucratic processes to correct the bad things that happen. You know, like in my first book, I talk about a tired program that made a server update error on the Knight Capital Group, New York Stock Exchange trading platform. And in 45 minutes, it traded $7 billion worth of securities wasn't supposed to. Now, that wasn't my error or my team's error, but those are the kind of things that can happen in the software industry. And then you get bureaucracy kicking in. You got to have checklists and committees and meetings Mm -hmm. and sign-offs and approvals and all that kind of stuff. And so that wasn't going to work. I mean, it never works. And I realized that you can throw that picture away entirely and change the mindset around what does it take to build a culture of joyful leadership. And the model I use is a simple one. It's an airplane. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, even if you don't have a pilot's license like I do, everybody pretty much has an idea of what it takes to get an airplane off the ground. You've got lift Mm -hmm. that has to overcome the weight of the plane. You've got thrust that has to overcome the drag of the airframe in uh, in the wind. And so I just compare the forces at work on the airplane, lift versus weight, thrust versus drag. And I talk about the lift of human energy. What are some things we can do to lift human energy? And um, the, uh, you know, you think about the Gallup group that's been measuring human organizations for the last 60 years and 60 to 70% of people Mm -hmm. are disengaged at work. That is a fundamental failure of leadership. That is a squandering of human energy, right? And so there are things we can do to lift human energy. We can give clarity. We can give meaning. We can give purpose. We can give people a chance to give, get meaningful things done at work. Yeah. And it has to overcome the weight of what I call meeting load mm-hmm. of bureaucracy. You know, if you want to suck the human energy out of an organization, there's a simple three-step process to do it. Number one, have lots of meetings. Number two, don't make any decisions in those meetings. And number three, if by mistake you happen to make decision, that's okay, just don't act on it. (laughs) And you'll pull all the human energy out of your organization. And then the thrust of purpose is a big one. That's what pulls us through. That engine in an aircraft is what pulls us through tough times. It's like your description of Viktor Frankl. And for me, the kind of purpose that really pulls an organization forward is externally focused, Yeah. right? The outward mindset. And what I do with people, as I said, I'm going to turn your thinking beyond what most people would do. When you think about what your purpose of an organization is, I'm going to make your homework assignment harder. I'm going to take your customers, your employees, and your shareholders off the table because serving them is still inwardly focused. Yeah. You have to serve them or you go out of business. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I'm not saying don't serve them. 
But the kind of purpose that pulls an organization forward is focused beyond them. And it should be able to answer two simple questions. Easier to ask than answer. Who do we serve? What would delight look like for them? Mm. And so, for example, at Menlo, the people we really think about are the end users software. They don't pay us for what we do. They don't even know we exist. Our name doesn't go in the software we build. But one day they come back to us because they find out we're the ones that built the software they use every day in their life. And they tell us they love what we did. Yeah. That is joy for us. Mm-hmm. And then the drag that holds us back is a huge one, drag of fear. You know, I was taught to lead with fear in the earliest part of my managerial career. Wow. And that wrecks everything. Yeah. You know, because the part of our brain that's responsible for creativity, imagination, invention, and innovation literally shuts down when we are afraid. Mm -hmm. So if we're leading our people with fear, we are robbing them, robbing ourselves, robbing our organizations of the most human part of our organization. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Love that. Yeah, the neural neural pathways just shut down Mm -hmm. when we're experiencing fear. Yeah, we have um, in our Deeply C section, again, of our curriculum, we talk about potential, you know, the gap between the reality and our potential. And all of us have it, you know, we have the potential of becoming something probably great, you know, more than we can imagine. And the gap is created by fear, we talk about. And I, I talk about two types of fears. The first fear is the the moment that we define what the potential is we also are defining what the failure is mm-hmm. <laughs> and we don't like to fail so i'm afraid of failure so if i just keep my potential blurry and murky then i'll never know if i fail and i'll never have to experience that and so i don't ever want to be clear about my potential and set my sights so i end right. up kind of let's make lukewarm commitments to produce lukewarm results yeah and, <laughs> and we label those success to be okay yeah. with the mediocrity of you know, of it. So that's the first fear is the fear of failure of, of, of whatever the opposite is of that potential. And then the second fear is the barriers that I'm going to have to overcome to achieve Mm -hmm. that potential. And some of those are external that I can't control, but then a lot of them are internal, my own emotions, overcoming, you know, my own doubt, my own apathy or my own arrogance. And those are, those are, I'm also scared of having to face those things. And so for the, whatever reason, I divert from that potential uh-huh. and I settle um, or I just kind of, you know, I've some, in some cases, unfortunately, we, we, we plummet. Right. Um, and uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of that as you're talking about the idea of fear because I, I agree that it, it cuts off um, the potential, limits us drastically. And not only does it limit us, it sets us at odds with others in our organization. And so it not only robs us individually, but it robs us collectively because now I'm afraid to work with others. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid, are they judging me? Am I letting them down? Uh, Am I being compared to them in an annual performance review process? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and talking about the, the lift, you know, we had an episode, I don't know, few months ago just from a, a local leader here and we talked about unlocking the potential in others and that's what I was thinking of when you're talking about the lift of, of human energy and that there's so much human energy that we have and I experience I mean I, I just you're you ha- you obviously have something so special here because the best days that I have at work what have you I'm I'm experiencing joy mm-hmm. doesn't matter if I hit a speed bump a roadblock I you know, it's a 
I'm experiencing joy. But unlocking that on a regular basis for myself is a great challenge. Um, you know, I've had, when you talked about taking those long drives, you know, I might not be taking those long drives, but I find other ways to just mm-hmm. sort of numb, you know, numb the, the reality. Uh, so it's hard enough to do it individually, but then to unlock that in other people is a, it's, it's really hard. It's easy to talk about, yep. to talk about the benefit of it. I mean, what have you learned in your journey of first unlocking that consistently for yourself and then having to, you know, creating an organization, writing about it and helping people all over do that within their organizational space. Does that question make sense? Absolutely. You know, and I, um, I'll probably not be as good as at quoting Victor Frankl as you are, but, uh, uh, you know, one of his famous lines was between stimulus and response. There is a a gap, a pause. Mm -hmm. There's a moment where we can choose what our response is. And so I think for me personally, I will choose optimism. Mm. And I used to think, you know, I, maybe I'm just being Pollyannish, maybe pie in the sky. And then I realized, wait, no, optimism is actually much harder than choosing pessimism. We can always think about the things that are going to go wrong. But as you said, by choosing optimism, you're actually setting yourself up, right? Yeah. Because now people are like, well, he was just being too optimistic and they're waiting for the shoe to drop or something. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I think we can, if we can set, you know, there's a part of storytelling that's storytelling about the future. We'll cast a vision by telling mm-hmm. a story of what do we want to have happen in the future. And that's, again, a fundamental act of leadership is yeah. telling a story about what you want to have happen someday. And then ultimately unlocking it in a group of people, <laughs> you know, there probably isn't, aren't too many companies that don't speak regularly. Yeah. Maybe have posters on the wall about teamwork, mm-hmm. collaboration, trust. Mm-hmm. And yet they might speak 249 out of 250 business days a year about teamwork. And yet when we get to our annual performance review and the door closes and you're in the room with the boss, it's all about your individual performance goals. How did you compare to others? Did you exceed expectations? Because you know, Chris, only 3.7% of you can exceed expectations Mm -hmm. this year. I mean, it is just... You know, it's, I, sometimes I just want to, you know, shake the world and say, how do we come up with this stupid stuff, <laughs> right? Why, why are we doing this? Because yes. we're doing it to ourselves. Yeah. And by setting us in competition with one another rather than in collaboration with one another, we are costing our organizations mightily. Yet probably every business school you know, out there is teaching, oh, no, we need to we need to segregate people. We need to measure them individually and see what their individual productivity is. And I get this question all the time because we work in pairs at Menlo. Yeah. Two people, one computer. Mm-hmm. Almost everybody who comes through says, well, how do you measure individual productivity then? And I give them a provocative answer. I say, I don't care. <laughs> I really don't care about individual productivity. In there. And they look at me like, like I just said the sun doesn't rise in the east or something like that's just a fundamental truth we have to care as managers about individual productivity no i don't i care about team effectiveness yeah you know if we had a rowboat team or you know a sculling team on the river i don't want you to outperform everybody else around you or we're going to be going around in circles the whole time i need you acting in cadence with one another Mm -hmm to understand the relationship between you and your peers. And that's how we're going to win. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've shared uh, this story several times as well, more than I can count. But you can correct anything I got wrong. But even in your onboarding, your hiring process, when people come in for interviews, they're given something to work on to simulate what their job would be. And they're partnered up with another applicant. Yes. And then they're asked, if I'm remembering correctly, they're asked, your job is to make that person look good. And help them get a second interview. Yeah. Even though they're competing for the same position you are. Yeah. And of course, their minds bend. They're like, what? They're like, I what? want that. Yeah. I want the job. Like, uh-huh. We're pretty good at watching people collaborate with other human beings. Can you support the person sitting next to you? And here's the interesting thing about that. And I, I've actually come to some newer revelations about what we're doing there. Um, we're actually teaching our culture from the moment of first contact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're setting expectations. And you know what? Human beings are amazing at responding to clearly set rational expectations. Yeah. And our expectation is simply this. When you come into the office, your job is to help others succeed. That's our expectations. And we're teaching it during the first interview. Yeah. What's most compelling about your story and your organization is, and you said this a moment ago, I, I use this idea all the time, the writing on the wall. Now, everybody has in their organization the writing on the wall, which is our vision, our mission, our values. And uh, what I find most compelling is everything that, that you're doing, at least that I know about, is is to actually take those things literally. You know? Um, like uh, If you have a choice between a poster on a wall and actually living out <laughs> what your intention is, I'd suggest living it out. Yeah, li- but, but that simple concept, gosh, you know, I've had the privilege of learning from dozens, hundreds of leaders of different sectors, and I can't tell you how how hard that is for leaders to do and create that sort of environment and culture in their organizations where we actually do what we claim we do. You know, the, my, a lot of my research I was telling you before in my, in my, my PhD right now is I've, I've really dug into this gap between the espoused values that we have and the enacted ones. And, and I could probably point back any organizational challenge points back to that gap. And, and so I, I, I'm so compelled by the relentless commitment to doing that from the, and everything that you do, because it sounds really simple. All the listeners are like, yeah, we should do that, but we don't do it. I was in church. Simple ain't easy. (laughs) Yeah. I was in church, you know, a few weeks ago and some guy was talking in church, you know, Sunday school. Uh, and he said something that really stuck out to me. He's like, we should start to take literally what Jesus is teaching us, right? Like we should, <laughs> we shouldn't just sit here and talk about service and charity. Mm-hmm. We should go do it. <laughs> and I, there's, you know, psychologically, we like to talk about these things. We love having values and strong values and telling people about our values, but gosh, we don't like living them sometimes because it's hard. It means we have to change. It means we have to work. Yep. It means we have to be uncomfortable and, and and I just love that there's some real evidence right here in you know in Michigan at, at Menlo Innovation of just people committed to living those things and finding joy in it. Um, because I could tell you right now the days that I don't experience joy in my work and I have a great job I love it you know so I'm, this isn't me complaining about my job but you know I, the days I'm not experiencing joy I'm not thinking about the writing that we have on the wall and our values. And mm-hmm. I and if you were to ask me about them, I wouldn't know the first thing to tell you of what we intentionally do to live them. It's just in the expectation. We need to do these things. We yep. need to believe these things. And this circles back to storytelling. Because ultimately, where you reinforce your cultural intentions is in the stories you tell over and over 
and over again. Mm -hmm. Because it is in those stories that you are setting it deeper and deeper in your heart, not only in your own as the storyteller, but also in the minds of others as they're hearing the stories. Yeah. And I remember one time I was hearing from one of my team members and he said, you know, Rich, when you're leading a tour, he says, you tell the same stories over and over again, just like you were saying. And he said to me, he says, I always stop and listen to him. He says, I don't know how you do it. He, he says, every time you tell him, it's like you're telling it for the first yeah. time. He says, so I just stop working and I want to listen to him. And in that moment, I realized that, you know, I used to think the stories I was telling were for our guests, but no, they're actually for our own team. Mm-hmm. The guests are hearing them, of course, but Ian telling me that he listens to these stories over and over again tells me this is having an effect on him. It has an effect on how he thinks about the place he works and what he believes about the leaders. Because ultimately, if I'm telling the stories in a public setting, which is you know inside of Menlo, yeah. where the guests are hearing it, but the team members are right there. I'll tell you one thing I don't ever want to have happen is somebody to come up to me afterwards and say, hey, Rich, that, that story you were telling, um, could you tell me where that company is? I, I mean, it sounds amazing. Yeah. I would love to meet that company. You know, yeah. <laughs> I, you know I, I want to tell the truth about yeah. it. And, and that's an important part of storytelling as well is this isn't all about just rainbows and unicorns. Yeah. This is about the reality of what, mm-hmm. you know, we're regular human beings and we got to, we got to talk about the things we've gone through as well. Yeah. If, if we had time, um, yeah, I would, I would, you know, we got to wrap up here, but if we had time, I would love to get into, this is probably what listeners are thinking like, well, tell us this, you know, I would love to get into the barriers and the challenges of bridging that gap of your spouse values and your enacted ones. Cause it is hard work. And um, there's a lot to overcome. It's not fluffy and it's not butterflies, it's not rainbows. It's hard work. And it's most work that I would say lots aren't willing to do. Otherwise, everybody would have joy in their work. Well, and it's, I will just offer a few glimpses on that uh, as I reflect in our 21 years. It's not work you stop doing other things and then go do that work mm-hmm. and then come back. It has to be built into everything yeah, you're, what doing. you're doing. It has to be every minute of every day. It has to be attention paid and it has to be, um, you have to be willing to be held accountable and hold yourself accountable. Right. And so for us, we have a very non-hierarchical organization. So, uh, the, the team's in charge of most of this. Uh, and so it's, um, you know, it is the hard work of work every single day, and you should build it. You should build it into the systems you use. You should build it into your, uh, into your mission, into your practices. In you know, and I will simply say, uh, the part that often um, wrecks any attempt is people think they can leave their traditional HR practices alone and go build a great culture. And what I tell people is, if you're not taking a, if you create some cultural intention that you really believe in and you don't take a hard look at how do we recruit Mm -hmm. how do we interview how do we select how do we onboard how do we promote how do we fire you won't get the cultural intention you're pursuing yeah yeah i wish we could dive into that more (laughs) you can have me back in the show yeah we gotta gotta have for sure we've had several guests you know here a couple times jim chad several because it's just conversations get so rich we just want to keep keep going but um 
that I've I've been fed today, uh, you know, from 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 you with so many insights, lots of affirmations, new thoughts, um, reflecting a lot on my own life actually right now in my own work. Um, so I, I've benefited greatly. I'm confident anybody's listening to this this episode is also uh, benefiting. So a lot more to learn, you know. If, if you're listening, Joy Inc. Chief Joy Officer. You can find it all all over. Google it. You'll have plenty of places to, to purchase the books. Um, uh, so just amazing stories, as you can tell. You're, Rich has just scratched the surface of of things he's learned over the last you know twenty some odd years and in doing this. So pretty pretty amazing. And, and Rich, just thanks for joining the show. Thanks for being out here. I'm so excited to just let you be with the leaders tomorrow. Um, it's just a real treat for them and I'm absolutely ecstatic for it and I'm excited to be able to be the one to drive with you to the venue means more time to talk to you so I'm excited (laughs) Uh, about that I'm excited too I can't wait to be with y'all yeah appreciate it uh with that uh listeners anybody tuning in thanks for thanks for joining the show today um take care be safe until next time take care